He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As we get ready to study the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have a salvation, a so great salvation, as the writer of Hebrews says, a salvation that is based exclusively upon who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross, that he paid the penalty in total. He paid for every sin. He paid the sin penalty. Nothing can be added to it. In fact, the attempt to add to it simply destroys the gift. Father, we're thankful that all we need to do is simply accept it, believe it, trust in him, and we have everlasting life. Father, now as we continue our study in this first chapter of Ephesians, emphasizing what we have in Christ as believers in this church age, we pray that it might drive us to greater understanding of your word, a greater desire to respond to you in service and create a greater hunger in us to know your word and to know you through knowing your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and we are going to get into Ephesians 1, 11, and 12. Just think, there are only two more verses in this opening eulogy. Now, I've used the word eulogy, and that is a word that means a good or pleasant saying. It is something that is related to the Hebrew word beracha, which means a blessing, and that's what this is. It is a beracha. It is a blessing statement by Paul, and it's really modeled off of various uh, statements of blessing from the Old Testament that reflects his uh, deep insights into the Old Testament as a result of his uh, rabbinical training and understanding of the truth of the Scriptures. This is divided into three sections, for he is stating the blessings that we have in Christ, first of all, from the Father, second, from the Son, and in verses 13 and 14, from God the Holy Spirit. There are some fascinating interconnections between each of these statements. There are similarities of vocabulary. There are reference and allusions back to what he has stated before as he connects it from one person of the Trinity to the next person of the Trinity. And as you can study this, I think you could probably, and there have been some who have taught for hundreds of hours, 
just on each of these verses. Of course, you're not really teaching these verses. You're teaching what most of the Bible says, and then you're bringing that to bear to expand on the understanding of each phrase, each word, each phrase, each uh, clause of this particular opening uh, eulogy. But the emphasis in these next two verses, still talking about what we have in Christ in relation to the blessings from the Son, talk about the fact that we are now God's own possession. Now, this is going to be kind of fun. I always enjoy a passage like this because we have to get into some interesting studies of the vocabulary and the grammar. I know that drives some of you a little nuts. Um, But we have to get into that because there's a certain amount of mistranslation and misunderstanding in the translations most of us use. So we have to straighten some of that out. But by way of review, so we don't lose sight of what we have studied and the the context, because this section from verse 3 down to verse 14 is all one sentence in the original. It's been broken up in English translations in order to help the reader put these things together and to understand how they connect to one another. But it's all one long, long sentence in the Greek which is uh, has its own uh, issues. But we're going to focus on this. So let's go back and just pick up where we started in this section with where the focus is on, on um, what we have in Christ as a result of our blessings in relation to the second person of the Trinity. So first of all, we saw that in verses 7 and 8 that uh, God lavished or abounded his grace to us And we have received more grace than all previous dispensations. And we should note also that when we look at verse 7, it begins with, in him. Now, we'll come back and talk about that phrase, but it is what we have and enjoy in Christ. And at the point of salvation, we are all entered into Christ. We're identified, Scripture says, with his death, burial, and resurrection so that this is what we have in this new entity called the church. Now, that summarizes a lot of what we're going to be looking at this morning. So the emphasis is on what we have as God's grace to us and that we've received more in this dispensation, and what we have received is more revelation from God. This is covered by the term, the mystery of his will. The term mystery relates to previously unrevealed information. It is not something we have to dig into to find out just exactly what it is, like you would solve a murder mystery or a puzzle or something of that nature. It simply means there's information, revelation that was not revealed in the Old Testament to Israel. It's not contained in the historical books or the former prophets or the latter prophets. It's not in the Torah. It was reserved for the believers in Jesus Christ. It was reserved for the church. So part of this abundance of grace that God has given us is expanded revelation, and that's been recorded and preserved for us in the 27 books of the New Testament. So this is part of our that grace package given to us. Now what we've learned, third, thirdly, is that the content 
of this mystery doctrine within the context of this epistle is stated in chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, is the fact that in history, as God has changed the way he is administering history, he has brought into existence a new entity called the church. It is not designed to replace Israel permanently, but to replace them temporarily in what is sometimes referred to as a parenthesis in history between the cross and the rapture of the church, that it is during this time that God is doing something different from what he did with Israel. But there are a lot of similarities, and there are a lot of comparisons that we can make. And this new spiritual entity does not distinguish between Jew or Gentile, whereas in the previous age, the age of Israel, there's a distinction made between the Gentile and the Jew. God gave specific spiritual responsibilities to Israel in the Old Testament. They were a a nation that was set apart to God as his unique possession and that God gave them responsibilities. It was through the, through Israel that he would reveal the truth of his word, that he would reveal the Torah, the Ketuvim, the Nevi'im, and that as a result of that, that they would be edified and they were to serve as a witness to the world, a testimony of the grace of God, that as people came to them, they would see a unique, a distinct nation that lived and was blessed by God. And so they failed. And they failed because when the Messiah came, they rejected him. And so in their place, they're now under divine discipline. But God has raised up this new entity where Jew and Gentile are united. And it goes beyond that because what we see from the passages that relate to that, that are uh, focused on the baptism by the Holy Spirit, that all of the distinctions that were part of the law, distinctions economically or socioeconomically between uh, male and female, between slave and free man, these are no longer issues in our personal relationship to God. There are distinct roles for each, but that is quite different from what we saw in the Old Testament. There's no distinction between Jew or Gentile. All have equal uh, benefits and blessings from being in Christ. And this is specifically defined in Ephesians 3, 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. The fourth thing that we have seen is the importance of understanding this thing called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is primarily a consistent uh, interpretation of Scripture. That the very cores, we saw that there are three elements that are, uh, that are distinctive to dispensationalism. The first is a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture. Not that other people may, may not say that they have that, but they aren't consistent. They aren't consistent when they interpret prophecy. They aren't consistent when they interpret some aspects of what was revealed in the Old Testament. And when it comes to quoting certain things from the Old Testament in the New, they believe there is a change of meaning simply because the Jews were disobedient. Because of the way they they do not literally interpret the Old Testament, they see a continuity 
between the people of God, so that the Israel in the Old Testament is the church of God, and the church in the New Testament is the new spiritual Israel. So they don't have a distinction between Israel and the church, and they think that the church has completely replaced Israel in God's plan. That's called replacement theology, and it is the fertile soil out of which the uh, toxic weeds of anti-Semitism grow. So in dispensationalism, because we believe in a consistent interpretation of Scripture, we see that there's a distinction in God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. Thus, all of God's covenants with Israel are still in effect, and eventually he will fulfill those covenants uh, in the future when Jesus the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom. Now, fifth, what we see here is that the church-age believer is now made a new possession of God's in Christ. This is phenomenal. I think it's fascinating because of the failure to, to translate the passage correctly, some of the significant truth that is here is missed. When you translate it correctly, it fits phenomenally within the other statements that surround uh, verse 11, and we see connections to 12, 13, and 14 that are, that are pretty profound, pretty significant. So we'll get into verse 11. Verse 11 states, in him, now I'm quote, this is the New King James Version, which I will correct, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So as I stated earlier, the important line here is in him, just as we saw back in verse 7. It begins with in him. The focal point is what we have in Christ And this echoes what has been said all through this and what will be said all through this uh, opening uh, blessing statement. Ephesians 1, 3, 3, 4, and 6 all talk about what we have in Christ, but in relation to the blessing from God the Father. In Ephesians 1, 7, 1, 10, and 1, 11, we have statements about what we have in Christ in relation to God the Son. And then in one thirteen, we will find that it is in him that we also were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, a guarantee of our inheritance. Now, I bring that up because when we get into verse 14, which states that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance, We recognize that at the beginning of verse 11, it says something about our inheritance. In him, we also have obtained an inheritance, although that's not a correct translation. We'll see that in just a minute. So this is a chart that we use to demonstrate the eternal realities that we have in Christ. At the instant of salvation, we're told in Ephesians chapter, um, excuse me, in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, that at that instant, it's not something we experience. We don't feel it. The only reason we know it happens is because the Scripture tells us that it happened. So the instant that we believe in Christ, God the Holy Spirit is used to identify us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And it is something that is so profound that it destroys the, the tyranny of the sin nature over us. It is the foundation for this new spiritual life that we have as believers in Christ and what we have in him. So that's part of our eternal reality. We are in Christ. We can never be separated from Christ, and it transforms who we are. On the right side of the chart, it describes our temporal realities. That is, that sometimes we are walking by the Spirit, sometimes we are not. Sometimes when we are walking by the Spirit, uh, we sin, and then we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We need to confess sin, but that's another issue. I'm just focusing on the eternal reality of what we have in Christ. So as we look at this, we have to look at a couple of important issues related to the translation and the interpretation of this first phrase, we have obtained, or in some translations, we have received an inheritance. The verb that is there is the Greek verb klerao, which if you see the the parsing of the verb, the part of speech, it is a first-person plural. This is the first issue. First person plural is the pronoun we. It's a, it's not I, it's we. So who's the we? Who's included in the we here? And there's debate over this because there are those who say that here it refers to all believers in Christ. There's not a distinction made between uh, Jew and Gentile here as there is in chapter two and also in chapter three. Now, I disagree with that. I think what Paul is doing here is he's walking them through a historical development, and he's referencing the fact that in the church, when the church was given birth to in Acts chapter 2, it was all Jews. The church was made up of Jewish believers until Acts chapter 10, when God gave a vision to Peter to go to the centurion Cornelius in Caesarea, and there he gave the gospel to the Roman soldiers, the household of Cornelius, the Gentiles, and they become equal members in the church with Jews. So it's the Jew first, and then uh, then to the Gentile. And as we look at the flow here in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we see that starting in Ephesians uh, 2, uh, 11, and 12 and following, it's very clear that the we refers to we Jewish believers and the you refers to you Gentile believers. But it's also very clear right here in this immediate context that Paul still has that distinction. In Ephesians 1.12, he says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And what that means is that that he's talking about the Jews. So right in the context, he's, he's making a distinction between what we experience and then what you as Gentiles experience. And he's taking the reader from the beginning that we experienced all these things as Jewish believers, but then as you're brought into the body of Christ, you experience all of those things. So the bottom line eventual reality is, yes, this is true for every believer, Jew or Gentile, but Paul is walking us through this, uh, this chronologically. So the we here refers uh, at the, in the time in which Paul was writing to we Jews who first 
uh, trusted in Christ. Now, the next two issues, the next two questions have to do with the translation of this verb. It is also a passive voice verb. Now, for those of you who were, are grammatically challenged, an active voice verb means that the subject of the verb performs the action of the verb. Okay, so in this case, it's a first-person plural, so the we describes those who would perform the action if it's active voice. So you would have to do a little bit of translational gymnastics to get that. We have obtained. But even in the way they translated the have obtained, the idea of reception is a passive idea. It's a passive verb, but translating it as we have obtained tries to make it an active an active voice verb, and this is how a number of translations handle this. They recognize that it's a passive voice verb, but immediately they say that it should be understood as a middle voice and then translated as an active voice. How's that for confusion? So this is what you will find, for example, in the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard, whether you've got a 77 version or 95 version, NIV and ESV and any number of others. And so I take time because there's always visitors and new people that it's important to properly translate the text before we can ever understand what it means or before we can apply it. And this is why it's important to do what I did when I went through Dallas Seminary, and that is to get a firm grounding in the original languages. There are many men who have firm grounding in the original languages. In fact, the men who translated the NASB and the NIV and others had as good, if not better, an education in the original languages than I did. But we're all subject to making mistakes and making errors. One of my favorite quotes from a seminary professor was from Alan Ross, who uh, taught Hebrew at Dallas, had a doctorate in theology from Dallas and a doctorate and a Ph.D. from Cambridge. And he was on um, various upper-level administrative and uh, oversight roles in the translation of the NIV. And I had him for a word study course, and he would often say, well, I really wish that we could have put in the margin that this is the word of God by a vote of five to four reason I say that is not to put down these English translations, but to recognize that there are uh, some legitimate challenges in making a translation. Some people got the idea years ago that, oh, if I just learned the original languages, I won't have any problems. No, you'll just have another set of problems, okay? And you're just, as it were, pushing pushing the ball down down the road a little bit, but you are not uh, avoiding problems just because you know the original languages doesn't solve the problem. But even though there's a large group of translations that translate it as more of an active voice verb, there are quite a few that do not. The American Standard Version says, "...in whom also we were made a heritage." See, that puts it in a passive form. We receive the action. God is doing the action, but we, the subject of, the grammatical subject of the verb, because it's a passive voice verb, receive the action of the verb. Uh, simple illustration. If John hits the ball, John is the grammatical subject. 
but he performs the action of hitting the ball. If we change it to a passive voice and we say the ball was hit by John, the ball is the grammatical subject, but it is the receiver of the action of the verb. So in this case, we, the, the, the grammatical subject here, is the receiver of the action. And the action is to make you a heritage, an inheritance, or a possession. So the uh, ASV translates it that way. The NET, I'm uh, critical of how they handle some things. I'm critical of the theology that is sometimes found by their translators, but they have accurately, I think, translated this the same way. They translate it in Christ. We, too, have been claimed as God's own possession. Now, I think that's really interesting. We, too, have been claimed as God's own possession. They, if you contrast it with uh, Gordon Olson's translation, and by the way, we have his translation of the New Testament available if anybody wants to pick one up. It's called the the uh, Resurrection New Testament, and in many ways he has done a good job. It's kind of a cross between a literal translation and, and um, not paraphrase, but expanded translation. And he says, also it was through union with him we were made his inheritance by his laying claim. See, they both have this idea of laying claim, but he recognizes that the laying claim comes out of the verb that most people translate predestined, and the NET translators like the idea of predestination because they're mostly pretty strong Calvinists, and so they've got the idea, and they just brought it out of almost nowhere to add it into the first part to get that idea because it fits the context so well. So anyway, what I'm pointing out here is simply this, that you have a disagreement going on between men who are very well educated in the original languages and who uh, recognize uh, that there are some some issues involved here. I think that because it's a passive voice verb, it must be interpreted as a passive voice verb. And it's talking about the fact that at salvation, we become God's possession. That's the core idea of inheritance, and we'll look at that in just a minute. So in him, we also have become his possession. That's how it should be translated. Now, we have good uh, a good basis for this when we look at the at the old testament in the old testament we have the corporate election of israel god has a corporate plan for israel a plan and a purpose for israel it's spelled out in the covenants with israel and in a number of passages god talks about israel as a corporate entity as his inheritance and inheritance has that idea of ownership of our property or a possession. And let me show you this, because it it just builds the analogy that that Paul is using that's in the back of his mind as he is now talking about this new entity uh, called the church. In Deuteronomy 4.20 we read, But the Lord has taken you, Moses is speaking, he's talking to the Israelites, he's saying that, uh, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, 
to be his people an inheritance as you are this day. So they, as a corporate entity, are a possession of God. Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. Deuteronomy 9, 26, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your inheritance, that is your possession. Verse 29, yet they are your people and your inheritance. Deuteronomy 14, 2, God has chosen you to be a people for himself. And then the last use of this is in Deuteronomy 32, verse 9, For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Now this is where things start getting tied together and we start seeing some connections. When the Hebrew says that and describes Israel as the Lord's portion, the Septuagint, that is the uh, ancient Greek translation about 200 years before Christ of uh, of the Torah from Hebrew into Greek, uh, use the word meris. The rabbis who were translating uh, the Hebrew into Greek understood exactly what this was saying, and they chose this word in, in Greek because it's a technical word that we studied its cognate meros in John chapter 13 to describe that portion of a will or testament describing the share of an inheritance. Meros is the word that is used when the prodigal son uh, went to his father and said, I want my share of my inheritance. So this is a technical term for receiving a portion of property due someone. So the Lord's portion or his share is his people, and the word portion is parallel to the word inheritance. Now, the word inheritance in the, in the Hebrew is nahala, which means to give something as a possession. Now, that's important to understand. When we think of inheritance, we think of something where somebody dies and in their will they're designated a portion of their property to go to a, an heir, and a death has to take place. That's not the idea in the Hebrew word. And remember, the Hebrew words and concepts are the frame of reference for the New Testament. The Hebrew concept of nahala, or inheritance, is really a possession of property. Something is owned by someone, and this is seen in all of the major major lexica that describe this. The word nahala is used 222 times in the Old Testament, 46 times in Numbers, and 50 times in Joshua. Now, why is that significant? Because it's in those those books of the Old Testament where the 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 designation of where the clans and the tribes will live once they get into the Promised Land are laid out. And a lot of Joshua, half the second half of the book, almost reels, reads like a real estate document where it's giving the boundaries for all of the different tribes and families where their allotment or their portion, their inheritance is laid out. So there is uh, uh, the the um, Howlot Dictionary says that the basic meaning for Nahala is inalienable hereditary property, its possession. The theological word book of the Old Testament states that it can be translated inheritance, heritage, or possession, and then says the idea of possession 
was conceived of as a permanent and not entailing the idea of succession. So it's a permanent possession. It's not something that is necessarily passed down from when someone dies to the next generation. So that's the idea we get when we use the word inheritance, but it's really our uh, possession, ownership of something. And that's what's emphasized in the New Testament language as well, that an heir is somebody who has a, pos- has a possession, and the inheritance should be really translated as possession. We become a possession of God. God now owns us, and that's what's reflected in the Greek at the bottom of the slide, that according to the Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, and Danker uh, Greek lexicon, the second meaning is that kleronomia, the Greek word for inheritance, means possession or property. Now, what that means is really fabulous as we look at trying to understand what is going on in verse 11, that we have become a possession of God. That's quite a bit different from saying that we've obtained a possession. It's stating that we have become a possession of God. We have received the action of that verb. So I've translated this. In addition, it was through union with him we were made his possession. We are now owned by God. This is the same thing Paul says in another way in 1 Corinthians, that we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We are his. God has laid claim to us. So there's a property emphasis there. And the next word is that word that we studied earlier back in uh, Ephesians 1.5 that is often mistranslated predestination. And it is a word that really has the idea of, of a laying claim to something. And we talked about this before, so I want to review a couple of things before we go, go back into that. The interpretation that I'm giving you, that we become a possession of God, reinforces the idea throughout this section that this is talking about corporate election and not God looking along and picking, okay, I'm going to take you, I'm going to take you, I'm not going to take you. It's not individual selection for salvation. It is talking about God's blessing to all those who are in Christ. We'll look at that terminology in a a minute. Second, so first of all, this reinforces the idea of corporate election. It's in him that we are made a possession, those who are in Christ. Secondly, the idea of being made his possession fits nicely with the concept of being sealed by the Spirit. That sealing by the Spirit is an action designating ownership, And because God now owns us, this reinforces the entire idea of eternal security. That's the third point. We are saved eternally because of our position in Christ, which cannot be lost. I have often, in order to communicate this to uh, an American audience, said that the sealing of the Spirit is akin to uh, being branded in the in, in the cattle industry, that you show the ownership by branding them, um, and that identifies who the rancher is who owned those particular cows. So again, we have this idea of ownership and possession that runs all the way through this this particular language. So when we come to the word that is translated predestination, 
the idea that usually comes into people's minds is the idea that God in eternity past, that's the pre-part, before there's anybody, before there's any human history, God chooses who will go to heaven and who will not go to heaven. That's the destiny part in predestination. And what we have seen is that in a previous study, and you can go back and listen to the details in Ephesians lessons uh, 16, 17, and 18, where I go into a lot more detail on this, that what this basically means is to ordain something ahead of time, which means to appoint somebody to a position ahead of time. And when I, as a pastor, was ordained back in 1981, it wasn't a selection for ministry. It was a recognition that God had gifted me for ministry and was setting apart or appointing me to a role and a responsibility, to a role of serving God. And that's the emphasis in this terminology is that we are appointed to service to God. It is not those who are in Christ, those who are in the body of Christ are all appointed to service of God. It is not about individual destiny of heaven or the lake of fire. And just to review these points, first of all, in in the discussions that go on with Calvinists and those who are more deterministic in their views, they usually ignore the fact that in two key passages, the only passages where foreknowledge and election are referenced together, God's foreknowledge precedes his foreordination. And the word for foreknowledge means simply to know something ahead of time. And all this boils down to God's omniscience. And the more we think about God's omniscience, the more it ought to fry our brains because we really have very little frame of reference to understand his omniscience. First of all, it means that God knows everything. He knows everything that could happen, everything that should happen, everything that ought to happen, and everything that will happen. He knows the potentials. He knows the what-ifs. He knows everything. We can't even imagine what kind of logarithm that would entail uh, in order to uh, come up with all of that information. But he knows all of that. S- secondly, he never acquires knowledge. He never learns anything. So a lot of the language that we use when we talk about God's knowledge or his will or his plans and purpose, I believe, are anthropomorphic. Now, there's another big word, Anthrop- or anthropopathic, actually. Anthropomorphism is a term that means a form of man. Anthro from anthropos meaning man, morph, morphe means form, where we assign something in the form of man, such as the, an eye or an ear or hand or arm, and we describe God's eyes, ears, hands, arm. But God doesn't actually have eyes, ears, hands, or arms. But we use this as a figure of speech to communicate the eyes of God relates to the knowledge of God, that he sees or knows everything. Same thing with the ear of God. He hears and knows everything. 
the arm of God relates to power, being able to do things. That that is a relates to His omnipotence, His ability to accomplish whatever it is that He intends. And so we have this this phrase that's basically anthropomorphic, and then we have another term, anthropopathic, which assigns to God human emotions, human feelings to do the same thing. We can't actually understand who God is in and of himself, so we have these analogies that that we understand so that we can better understand who he is. And in knowledge, we can't comprehend this kind of absolute intuitive knowledge where God has always known everything. And the reason I bring that up is when we get into the last part of this particular verse, it says that he does, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when we start talking about God's will and God's counsel, we immediately put things into some sort of chronological order as if God is thinking things through about what he is going to do. But God doesn't think things through to see what he's going to do because he has always known everything absolutely without any of this kind of chronological order. There never was a time when he didn't know what was going to happen. There never was a time when he didn't know what he was going to do. He always knew all of the intricacies and connections of every action and everything that was going on. But this is the best way that we can express this in a way that we can get some level of comprehension. So God's foreknowledge involves the fact that before he created anything, In eternity past, billions and billions and billions of years ago, he knew everything that was going to happen, and he he knew all the details, he knew everything that might have happened, could have happened, whatever, and that forms part of the decision-making process of God if we use that anthropopathism. He always knew this, and that precedes his foreordination. And to say that, well, God didn't take into account any of his knowledge from his omniscience when he selects a plan, as it were, uh, is, is absurd. Yet that is what Calvinism does. Calvinism ignores the fact that foreknowledge precedes preordination and says that God uh, cannot choose on the basis of this kind of knowledge because that what that does is it means that human beings become um, they, they're chosen or God's plan is determined by their volition and that's meritorious. And I've demonstrated that that's not necessarily true at all. It is just that their, their small God is not as great as a big God who handles everything and can know everything and can know it and, and oversee it in such a way that human volition those crazy things that we decide to do can still be allowed without destroying the outworking of God's God's plan and purpose. And that's a bigger God than the God of Calvinism who doesn't know all the things that could have happened because since he determines everything that will happen, there's no knowledge of what could have happened at all. And that denies some scripture which specifically say statements like if... Sodom and Gomorrah had had seen what Chorazin and Bethsaida had seen, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus knew what could have 
or might have happened under different scenarios. But that's denied at the core of Calvinistic understanding of the omniscience of God. So God's foreknowledge precedes his plan and purposes, logically speaking. Second, the idea of predetermining our eternal destiny is based on a mistranslation of the word praorizo, going back to the church father Augustine in about 400 A.D., and he interpreted all of this in a somewhat deterministic fashion and influenced another church father by the name of Jerome, who translated the uh, Hebrew and Greek of the Old and New Testament into Latin. And he chose a word, predestio, which means predestination, and that wasn't an accurate translation of the Hebrew. So we saw, thirdly, that the idea of election was based on the possession of Christ's righteousness, that because we possess Christ's righteousness, we are choice. This is seen in Matthew 22:14, a verse that is often translated, many are called, but few are chosen. And if you look at the parable preceding it, the only people that make a choice are those who choose to respond to the invitation to come to the banquet. That, that they, and then at the banquet, they are given new clothing, and it's on the basis of the fact that they have this new clothing that they, that they stay. The one who shows up without the new clothing, which is a picture of possession of Christ's righteousness, is the one who is eliminated. So the idea of election and choosing is often mistranslated and should communicate the idea of choice. Now, as we've gone through, and as I've been reading through in my own reading lately, in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings and Chronicles, it's amazing how many times you have this word bahar in Hebrew translated as chosen, but the idea is selection, and and it's David chooses a thousand warriors. And and the idea is really that they are choice warriors. He's selecting them on the basis of their qualifications. You know, he's taking them through through basic training, and the ones who do the best are the ones who are chosen for this elite force. It's the idea of they are choice or they are select. The word choice means that it's something of good quality, it's excellent, or it's the best. Now, the reason I have this magna bar up here is because when I went to Israel, this was a number of years ago now, I was learning to read modern Hebrew script, and I was always bugging our guide to help me uh, understand how the script was read or modern vocabulary. And so, especially with the ice cream bars, which I love, uh, I wanted to make sure I understood which flavors were which. You know, we're always motivated by by that, uh, by our stomach, I guess. So the Hebrew down here is Shekedim Mobekarim. The M at the beginning of Mobekarim means it's a verb that's turned into a noun, a participle. Here's the transliteration, and it means choice almonds. There's that word bahar in Hebrew that's often translated uh, chosen. But it's here it's the idea of that which is choice. It is chosen because it meets a qualification. It is superior to other almonds. And we have that many other times in, in the New Testament. 
It is that idea that for some purpose, on some qualification, God has made a selection. Isaiah 41.8, we see that Israel as a corporate entity is chosen. You, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, it's a corporate entity chosen for a purpose in history, not in terms of eternal salvation. Psalm 40, I mean, Isaiah 41.9, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. And then in Isaiah 42.1, it, it, it describes the servant, the Messiah. You are my elect one, literally we should translate it, my choice one in whom my soul de- delights. Jesus wasn't chosen from among many for his mission. He is the choice one because he's the only one qualified for that particular mission. So when we come to Matthew 22:14, the issue wasn't who was chosen, but on their qualifications of possessing the righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ. And even in the Old Testament, it recognizes this in Isaiah 61:10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. So when we look at this whole term, fourth of all, fourthly of all, in the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, it recognizes that the Greek word praharizo is extremely rare. In fact, in the New Testament, I, I think it's only six times. So and it's only used one time in classical Greek literature outside the Bible. So a whole theology is built on this word where there's very little evidence of what it means. And the one usage in the that we have in classical literature in Demosthenes, it has it's translated to pre uh, translated preordained or literally to have a to lay a claim to something. So these are the words involved. The root word is harizo, which has the idea of determining or appointing boundaries. Again, it's a property word. Uh, you have aphorizo, which means to separate or, or remove those boundaries. Praharizo means to determine something or decide upon something ahead of time to appoint somebody to a position ahead of time. So in Demosthenes, the key statement is, that right here, but that he laid claim to 2,000 drachma. That word, he laid claim, is praharizo. So we have the idea of laying claim to a possession or property, and that's what fits the best. Romans 8.29, Arthur Way, a classic scholar, translated it, Long ere this he knew our hearts, long ere this he claimed us as a man claims property by setting his landmarks on it. Okay? So this has a solid basis, uh, uh, lexical basis for translating it this way. Other translations like the, uh, in Ephesians 1.11 in the NBV translation, in him we too were made his heritage. Notice that's translates the verb correctly, and uh, as foreordained according to his purpose. That's pre-appointed to a purpose. In my translation, I said, in addition, it was through union with him, we were made his possession 
by his laying claim to us according to his purpose, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, his purpose refers to God the Father, and he does this according to a standard. And that standard is described by two words, a lot of controversy, debates, on and on about what are the similarities, what are the differences in these two words that often are closely, are close synonyms. The counsel of his will. That's the standard in God's laying claim to us. So the first word, counsel, is the Greek word boule. I think Harold Honer had a very good uh, interpretation of this word. He says it, it, it relates to the intelligent deliberation of God. And then thelema is the application of the outworking of that deliberation. So that uh, he, him who works all things according to the intelligent deliberation of his will or desire, his outworking. Then we come to the last verse, which is pretty simple. That it, this expresses the purpose of why he laid claim to us in Christ. Why, we, why those in Christ are his possession. And Paul says that we who first trusted Christ, now it doesn't say trust actually in the text, it's pro-elpizo, elpizo is the verb to hope, and he's saying we who first hoped in Christ, we who first hoped in Christ were the Jews, and we did this to the praise of his glory. Again, ending in that uh, statement that all that we do is to the praise of his glory. But here the word glory really relates not to that that um, effulgence that we often think of as God's glory, the Shekinah, but it relates as a, as a circumlocution or another way of saying it to the essence of God. We have Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Glory of God there represents his whole character, his essence. That's his glory. So here it is to the praise of his essence, and that's what lies behind all that we're talking about in this particular section. So next time we'll come back and we'll get into the third part of this opening berchad, this opening eulogy, looking at the role of the Holy Spirit and the blessings related to God the Holy Spirit with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we're thankful that we are your possession. You have laid claim to us in Christ, that all those who are in Christ are marked by you as your possession. You own us. We are yours. And because we are yours, you have a plan and purpose. You have designated a task for us to serve you and to carry out your will as we live on this planet. Father, we thank you for the understanding of this, that that everything in this passage seems to relate so closely to this idea of ownership and property, uh, inheritance, all of this, because we are yours, we are to live our lives for you. Father, we pray that if anyone is listening today or listening to this lesson at another time, that that they would understand that the key issue, if you are not a believer in Christ, is to trust in him. We trust in Christ. It has no merit in itself. The merit is in what Christ did on the cross. We're trusting in his work on the cross. And at that instant that we trust in him, we have eternal life. 
And at that moment, that instant, we are identified with Christ. We become uh, in him, in his body. We are uh, part of that corporate entity of this new body of Christ. And as such, there's a new destiny, a new purpose, a new meaning for our lives. And that it is not based on anything that we do, but on your grace and all that you have provided and supplied for us. Father, we pray that we can reflect on what we've learned today and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us its meaning and its impact for our day-to-day living. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.